No escape for you. You either leave this war bloodied or with my blood on your swords. I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad variety of pleasuring. Oh, you jewel. That's exactly what I hoped. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, aging rapidly. <laughs> oh boy, we are going to go down that road. I'm very uh, excited about this because this week we are going to talk about an eternal question. Why does Star Trek remake itself? Yeah, it has this propensity for ripping itself off. And you see that in episodes that sometimes can't... Maybe the purpose is to pay homage, but it just really seems like a ripoff, right? Yeah, and I think sometimes I'll give them a pass if it's like they had a really good concept didn't go off, you know, like with fireworks the first time. And then they repeat it and somehow it really works out. But those aren't the episodes we're going to probably talk about this week. Am I correct? Yeah, there's <laughs> adventures. Maybe the big one I, I want to kick it off with, though, is Star Trek Into Darkness, which was kind of a loose remake of Wrath of Khan. Um, there's some role reversals here. You know, Kirk dies instead of Spock. Why? Because the script says so. Um, all of the big kind of like emotional moments are kind of sapped through those decisions. And Kim, e even big reveals like Khan's identity, it, it just loses all power because fans have already figured it out. So it's no big deal. And non-fans don't understand the significance of a, a very, very white Benedict Cumberbatch uh, <laughs> announcing, I am Khan. So it, it, it's just, it was one of those adventures where I was just like, what is the point of this? Like, what is the point here? Yeah, I love the lineage of how we got Benedict Cumberbatch. They were like, Benicio Del Toro, will you do it? Hmm, okay. Edgar Ramirez? Hmm, okay. Damien Bashir? Hmm, okay. Well, clearly the next in line is uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Well, even those choices, Cam, why not one single South Asian actor? Why, why were there all, well, like, um, men of, like, Latin heritage? I get Ricardo Montalban, but, like, he yeah. he wasn't South Asian. He, he was playing a South Asian man, like, back in the 60s and the 80s. Yeah, oh, totally. It's 100% clear that they wanted to pay tribute to Ricardo Montalban's casting. And um, I don't think in 2021 they would do that when it came to casting. But uh, I, I guess in 20, whatever they were casting this, 11 or 12... It seemed like a good idea, I guess. Yeah, you don't think that this would happen nowadays, right? No, I don't think so, no. Okay. No. Well, there's a, there's there's going to be enough actors out there for them to choose from. Um, and they would also make the effort. 10 years ago, they just weren't looking, right? Well, that's why I added the, they would make the effort. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas back then, they weren't going to make the effort. It was like, we want a marquee name. And like most, although, I mean, was Damien Bashir a marquee name at that point? Edgar Ramirez? Not, not so much. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, weird i can't I, I don't know it was weird choices going on there but creatively yes um you and i i just remember i don't know the experience of the lead up to to um into darkness is so much more memorable to me than the experience of watching it the first time i just remember how much we talked about the con aspect of it they wouldn't really do that would they and then they were i think they released a still or something that was teasing the Wrath of Khan, like the, you know, the hands between the glass kind of stuff. And it was like, okay. And then when you actually see it played out, it wasn't like a fun homage. It was like, it was just a complete carbon copy ripoff. But just, yeah, as you said, reversing Spock and Kirk. And it just, everything about it felt tone deaf in a way that Wrath of Khan is just perfect. Everything, you know, the way that the emotion plays out over that scene, the sense that, this may be the end of Spock. There is that question mark hanging over that whole scene. And it feels like a true sacrifice. And even just like the way that Spock sacrifices himself 
Just going through this scientific process of changing, I don't know, steaming things in barrels. I don't even know what he's doing. But you cut to, like, Into Darkness where, um, um, where uh, Chris Pine is, like, kicking the crap out of, like, a piece of machinery. And it's like, all <laughs> gravitas is gone. <laughs> well, the entire time I was watching it, I was asking myself, like, what is the point of this? You know, like, both from a creative perspective, but also, like, a marketing perspective. Because if you recall... They denied up until when the movie came out that this was like kind of a, a, a return of con at all. And so from a creative perspective, like, don't you want to do something kind of new and original? Now, I, I, I get if you're making a Batman movie, why not bring back the Joker? It's an iconic mm. villain. Do you think that was the idea there? You know, like, why not bring back one of Star Trek's most iconic villains? But like, it just seems like kind of a uh, creatively depressing deprived sort of uh deprived depraved um sort of decision <laughs> both, both yeah. you know but it's also from a marketing perspective what was the point of that if they were just gonna like hide it and the writers and jj uh, abrams the director denied it denied it denied it the entire time like I, i'm trying to wrap my head around like the entire decision making process like what was the point of that I don't know. I was actually listening to an episode of the official Star Trek podcast, the one where they talked about the Wrath of Khan, going back and watching Wrath of Khan, and the critic Amy Nicholson says she was so infuriated by that whole um, advertising campaign that in her opening line of her uh, review, she just wrote, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Khan. Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> She's like, why would I support a horrible marketing? Um, like, It's not my job to support their marketing. Um, and you're right, like it... It was a sort of reveal that doesn't mean anything. If you have, you know, you reference Batman. If you had a character reveal halfway through the movie that it was the Joker, you know, before he got the whatever green hair and white face, um, people would be, I think, maybe shocked. There would be surprise if he said, you know, I'm the Joker or something like that. Um, I'm Khan. Uh Like, you and I are like, yeah, we know. And I think a lot of people in the audience are like, well, that sounds interesting. Who is this man? <laughs> he well, seems okay. to—he seems to really believe in the power of his name. Who is he? <laughs> Cam, what if they rebooted the next gen uh, as kind of a film franchise, and you have like this omnipotent rascal, you know, causing trouble uh, uh, for about halfway through the movie, and then at one point he just turns to Picard and says, "I am Q." <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's so stupid. It's but so stupid. I would argue the filmmakers of Into Darkness knew this, though, when they included the scene of Nimoy explaining who Khan was. Because it's very clear that they thought the audience wouldn't know who Khan was either. Yeah, he's like, he is the most dangerous enemy you'll ever face. Exposition, exposition. And it's just kind of like... I, I, that's why I keep asking, like, what was the point of this? It just, it, it made no sense from a creative perspective. And I, I can kind of rationalize things in my head. If a movie is trying to make money, they're trying to earn their budget back, and they're going to do it from a marketing perspective. Um, okay, sure. But, like, from a marketing perspective, it was really stupid, too. Like, yeah. Bit, I, because you're withholding his identity. Yes. I don't know, what, like... The thing was, fans can sit there and pick apart the trailers and everything. I don't think anyone who's just, you know, showing up at whatever movies were playing, you know, six months before Into Darkness opened, you know, your average moviegoer is sitting there watching the trailer for Into Darkness going, I got to piece this one together. <laughs> like, they're like, okay, I, I don't... And, I, and, ben, and Benedict Cumberbatch wasn't a star at this point. He was not Doctor Strange or, you know, he wasn't hugely known. So, like, it probably meant nothing to anyone. Um, maybe the bigger mystery should have uh, centered around who is Carol Marcus. Oh, it was actually somewhat of a mystery because I remember yeah. there was a lot more debate going on because I think fans just were like, yeah, yeah, he's con, whatever, moving on. There was a lot more debate whether it was like Carol Marcus or the character whose name I'm totally blanking on in Where No Man Has Gone Before, um, the one who teams up with Gary Seven. I remember there was oh, theory yeah. about that. Um and yeah, the one played by uh, Sally Kellerman played that character. Yeah, there was a lot of theories going around about who that could be. Um, Con, there was no real theories. <laughs> well, for a long time, I, I guess a lot of people were saying Benedict Cumberbatch's character would have been Gary Seven. And that's why there's speculation on Alice Eve's character. So um, I would have preferred a Gary Seven reveal versus a Con reveal. I, I think that would have 
I, I could understand. Okay, if the question is why remake this, um, how many people uh, have such recollection of where No Man Has Gone Before versus you know Wrath of Khan? You know, like sure. that's something I could wrap my head around there. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting though that when it came to the choice to use Khan, it was a fifty-fifty um, among the writers and then J.J. Abrams, where like fifty percent didn't want to use him and fifty percent did. So it feels like even there they were polarized about, is this a good idea? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, overall, uh, who am I to argue? It was the highest grossing Star Trek movie of all time. Uh, it, it did really well amongst the critics. It's just, it's not a beloved film among fans. And I, I wonder if critics go back and kind of um, uh, pick it apart much like the fans do. Maybe it doesn't quite hold up, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not somebody who... It, necessarily gets more enjoyment from like film or television by just really nitpicking uh, but like this th this seems seemed so loose when it came to this movie yeah and i can understand if you want to pay homage to famous moments because moving beyond con you have you know the con scream and you have the death of kirk and to me if you're going to choose those moments and try to you know comment on, on them or change the context it could work but as used here, the execution was uh, like super poor. I remember when Spock screamed Khan, people just laughed, which isn't really what you want in a moment where his best friend has just died. <laughs> well, is this a uh, a better death for Kirk than Star Trek Generations? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, yeah, probably. Um, it has more of a sacrifice. He goes out. Like, look, he's doing action stuff in Generations, but it's not particularly exciting or impressive action stuff. Maybe, like, that swinging from the rafters and kicking, I don't know, a metal something or other is more action-based? I don't know. Uh, is his return to life better in Into Darkness or in Shatner's ghost-written novel series? <laughs> well, I mean, clearly it's better in the novels. They always say the book is better than the movie. Yeah. True. Uh, have you been able to crack open the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novelization yet, Cam? No, I'm just finishing up a book on Hedy Lamarr. So once I finish that, I'll be reading the Once Upon a Time novel. Yeah, I, I just need to finish up my Star Trek Into Darkness novelization, and then I'm cracking open uh, Tarantino's uh, first ever published novel. They probably put out a novelization of Into Darkness, right? I, I It wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Um, should we, should we be reading these for like nuggets that were like not used in the movies? <laughs> Maybe the novelization is genius, you know. I no, I, I am reading the Tarantino um, novelization as we speak, and it's really good. Like, and like it explains stuff that's not actually included in the movie. Scenes are, uh, you know, framed differently. Um, a lot more insights into the characters in ways that you wouldn't expect. So. Um, Maybe the novelization uh, rationalizes and explains all of these little uh, nitpicks that we have with Into Darkness. Only one way to find out. Subspace Book Club starting soon. <laughs> yes. Can't wait. All right, Cam. Uh, what's uh, on your list here? Well, you started with a famous one. I will continue with a famous one. This is the one-two punch of The Naked Time from the original series and... The Naked Now from TNG, an episode I actually just watched uh, Naked Now minutes before this podcast recording. Oh my god, it's so much crazier than I remembered. Like, it is true insanity. Cam, I mean, we got the first reference to data being anatomically correct in this one. Um, it was the 80s. Is that how we kind of explain it all the way? I guess so. I mean, okay. yeah, it's a crazy episode and it feels like what the, I don't know what the decision making was behind this one, but part of it seems to be to me uh, that uh, you know Roddenberry is obviously you know controlling the ship somewhat um, out of the gate on TNG, and um, I'm wondering if when they did Naked Time back in the '60s, they weren't allowed to maybe get across some of the sexuality that he was interested in exploring, you know, on '60s broadcast TV, whereas like in the '80s that door was a little more open and that's why he wanted to do this because you know i think naked time is actually a really good you know plague on the ship episode and it delves into some character stuff about kirk's sort of inadequacies he feels you know when he's intoxicated that there is this beneath this sort of strong exterior there's a captain who has those very recognizable human insecurities um 
we see Spock dealing with the balancing of his emotion and his logic. Whereas, like, naked now, people just start getting horny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the 80s, baby. It really is. Like, there's a whole scene where, like, Tasha Yar is, like, strutting down, like, the, the corridor. And it's, like, playing, like, <laughs> like boom chicka boom music. It's, like, this is insane. <laughs> okay, so maybe that... Okay, if the question is, why is Star Trek ripping itself off? Maybe it's because Roddenberry feels more free to do what he wanted to do creatively you know 20 25 years earlier uh, but here's here's the problem though remember how his entire mandate going into next generation is we're not going to repeat ourselves we want to mm-hmm. be a completely different entity we won't even mention the names of you know old characters despite the fact that you have you know one uh, mccoy admiral mccoy passing on the baton like it was a big deal to even have uh, sark come back to the show in season three and even say have picard say the name spock you know that was stuff that you just weren't allowed to do but they're literally kind of taking the same format of an original series show you know it, it it's like what if they did uh, instead of the galileo seven they had the uh the justman seven in like hmm. episode four of uh, next generation it, it's the exact same thing right yeah who would be the um you know the the person who's forced to take charge in that remake jordy jordy laforge yeah and being yeah. kind of a leader <laughs> jordy's not leadership material I, I i know he's a beloved character see him in leadership positions he's he's just not a people person at all yeah and we didn't get enough of a study of him as a captain going forward because he obviously became one but i would have loved to have seen like an episode dealing with geordie as a captain because that would be fascinating to me do you think he's kind of like a a lower decks captain you know like uh he's doing like these kind of second contact missions is that it oh i wouldn't rule that out (laughs) okay um but one thing i really thought was interesting about naked now and i think part of the reason that really underscores like why it's a failure is that look if they just want to do this like goofy comedy episode i'm not against that um you know ds9 did it with fascination with very very similar subject matter but at that point in time we really understood the characters this is the second episode aired of tng and it even ends with this little coda of Picard saying something along the lines of like, I really recognize now we're going to have a very good crew. So it's like this was in the minds of the showrunners, like the episode that was going to indicate the strength of this crew. That's a very strange choice. And, you know, there's another episode I might touch on later. But again, it's too early to be showing us wacky versions of characters we don't know. Well, okay, so I, I listened to a great podcast called The Watch. Uh, one of the co-hosts is Andy Greenwald. He was a TV critic turned showrunner himself. And uh, he was talking about, like, the, the hardest thing to do is often not the pilot episode, but the second episode. Because essentially you have to kind of redo the pilot once again, just for anybody who may have missed it. Although that's maybe kind of a, a, a days gone by sort of dilemma in the age of binging. But mm. you have to reintroduce the characters and what the setup and, and story is and all that. But if you're doing just kind of a ripoff of an original series um, episode in which everybody is not acting like themselves, like, y- how are you really setting up these characters? And how are you kind of uh, making the audiences attached to people that just aren't acting like themselves? It's really only data and, you know... Picard is able to resist uh, a lot of this, uh, uh, much more so than, say, Dr. Crusher, you know. But it's just, it's not the way that you go in, like, that early into a series. But they also don't seem to have figured out the rules of Data, either. Because you have, like, I guess Data getting infected by this, but, like, that's the sort of thing that I don't think later in the show's run they would have done. I I never really understood kind of the mechanics of that, you know, uh, no pun intended with, with (laughs) like, because in my, my interpretation is that he was almost just kind of like, um, playing along to it, you know, I I was really confused because the scene with the, the famous scene where he's being seduced by Tasha Data's reacting as if he feels like a human chemistry. Like there is like a, a sexual urge in this moment that he can't control. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense with this character, who, as we're going to see throughout many, many, many uh, more hours of TNG, he's always trying to feel those human emotions and those sensations and trying to understand human impulses. The whole That's the whole point of the character. <laughs> so it's clear, you know, episode two, they just don't have that yet. 
Well, despite your objections to this episode, Cam, why is it that you still cosplay as one Tasha Yar in that uh, infamous outfit uh, every year in the Vegas convention? <laughs> and I have people playing music, uh, the boom chicka boom music as I walk down the hallways as well. <laughs> and all the all the people in season one data uniforms, they always have to kind of uh, approach you and uh, announce that they are anatomically correct. I do love when she finds the guy in the hallway, though, and starts making out. It's this very diminutive, um, unremarkable-looking man. It's just, like, this random dude, and you're like, interesting, interesting. Like, Discovery wouldn't do this. If you were to do—well, they wouldn't do this episode at all, but, like, if they were to do this sort of episode—you know how everyone on Discovery kind of looks like supermodels? Um, like, that's not what—that's that, not what's going on on TNG, and I kind of appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More more homely, sure. Uh, go for that. The, the other thing I, I didn't quite understand, um, just kind of the constitution of this plague uh, here, and that like it's just it's made to kind of replicate people just being like really drunk, right? It's like you're all carefree. Um, does that automatically mean you're just ultra ultra horny all the time? No, and that's the thing. It feels very one note in a lot of ways because that's what almost all of the characters are doing um except for like wesley obviously and there's like the um assistant engineer who just becomes like really juvenile and is like pulling out all the isolinear chips um yeah i I don't really understand like the whole concept it's one of those things where i'm sure it's a lot of fun to come up with the idea of what if there's like a plague that makes everyone feel drunk but they also aren't examining it in a way that's recognizable as drunk because there's no aggression. Like, you don't see people getting angry. You know, you don't see a lot of the symptoms that people get when they're drunk. Uh, Cam, like, you don't you don't drink. Um, you, you've been enough, uh, been in enough bars with, with people that are just wasted. Um, you don't get the sense that everyone's just, like, super horny, though, right? Only at the Vegas Con. <laughs> there you go. And only when you walk into the room. <laughs> In my Tasha Yar cosplay. Yes, okay. <laughs> boom, chicka, boom. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, the next one here, Cam, uh, we alluded to it uh, at the top of the episode, but I, I want to go into uh, the Deadly Years versus Unnatural Selection. Of course, mm. this is when we, we see crew members just aging rapidly in uh, both the original series as well as TNG to varying effects. And, and look, the, the original series uh, episode... It's actually like a pretty decent episode. Um, I, I I like the the performances. They they don't seem to quite jive with the ages of the actors now. Hmm. You know, William Shatner's ninety years old. He is uh, spry as a chicken compared to this uh, depiction that Shatner from fifty five years ago gave him uh, back in the day. I, I I would even say that he looks much better. You know, fifty five uh, years uh, later at this point. Um, here here's why i i question why they would bring it back and we, we see it with pulaski aging we kind of know what happens at the end right they're gonna go back to their regular age it, it, it kind of takes away a lot of the tension from this series where we just know everything's going to go back to normal i'm just kind of like it's also just such an iconic episode the deadly years why why bring that back without bringing in something really really interesting because there's maybe kind of like unofficial sequel episodes um in, in star trek but they always give it a really cool twist this just seemed kind of like a, a really obvious kind of like ripoff right it did yeah and also like with deadly years you got to see kirk and bones and spock like aging and that was part of the fun you got to see multiple characters whereas like unnatural selection you get pulaski <laughs> Yeah. And that's it. And so you're you're also doing a lower stakes version. Like I think it would be uh, look, I don't think Unnatural Selection was ever going to be a great episode. It's kind of a dippy, you know, setup and it, well it's a very I shouldn't even say dippy. It's just a very cliched, you know, Star Trek plague episode. We've got to figure out the plague. There's a ticking clock. But like wouldn't it be more fun if the entire crew started aging? I guess with except uh, Data and maybe you could say, like, Worf doesn't because he's, you know, part Klingon just to give a loophole for, a, you know, maybe a character would be interesting to see having to solve a problem. But, like, that's to me more fun if suddenly we get to see Patrick Stewart aging and looking the exact same um, and everyone else suddenly looking really old. <laughs> like, that would be way more fun because at least it's a little bit of escalation. It may not be a great episode, but you get some escalation in the fun of knowing 
for decades going forward, there'll be plenty of memes or, you know, screenshots of, you know, um, Jonathan Frakes in, like, old-age makeup or, you know, LeVar Burton or Gates McFadden, etc. Or you could bring back the actor who played Wesley in Hiding Q from season one. <laughs> True, and I said Gates McFadden, that would actually not work because she wasn't in season two, but uh, yeah, no, Marina Sirtis. bringing back uh, Gates McFadden <laughs> to solve the uh, medical mystery. Sorry, Dr. Pulaski. That's the episode they bring her back. They're like, okay, first we've got to put you in very old age makeup. It's like, <laughs> come on, guys. Screw you. Do you think there was any other reason to remake this other than we want to put a character in old age makeup? No. Because I I keep thinking about it, uh, like why out of everyone does it have to be Pulaski? Like I get it. she is like the doctor, but she's like a a recurring guest star at that point. Like and she wasn't even like a fan favorite. Like I mm-hmm. I like her, but you talk to the average fan, the you know they're not really into. There's not that many Doctor Pulaski fan clubs. That's all I'm saying. It's kind of like if you have a character that you're not all that invested in suffering from this plague, but you already kind of know that she's going to solve it, you know, by the end. It's like, like you said, Cam, like the the stakes are are pretty low in this one. The only thing I can think about uh, when it comes to Pulaski, like why it's her, is that, I don't know, like Deadly Ears is obviously a, it's not one of my favorite TOS episodes, but it's a very iconic one. And she has a couple connections to TOS. So it's sort of like that, I don't know, like have the actress who was known on TOS for showing up a couple times, have her go through this? I don't know. Could that be something? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, Just, I, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, that's the only thing I could even think of as, like, I know. potentially a reason. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't you... I'm, um, maybe they were just running to the issue. Season 7, DS9, they bring on Esri, and they give her several episodes to get the audience on her side. Right. Maybe this was just a their, you know, their approach to doing that with Diana Maldor on TNG was to give her an episode like this. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I don't want to give them that much credit in the fact that like, hey, look, it's an original series actress. Let's give her an original series storyline, too. Like, I don't think the thought quite went there. But this one just there wasn't like an interesting enough twist on this whole deal like uh maybe you saw that in uh i'm blanking on the name but remember that um dr bashir birthday episode in which the telepathic alien makes him kind of dream about aging quite rapidly at least that was a twist on kind of like a a similar sort of plot and and the stakes were actually different as well yeah that was distant voices and yeah it's not a remake it's just kind of carrying on that gimmick of characters looking old. Um, also in, like, uh, Charlie X, you know, you have Uhura looking really old. Like, Star Trek likes to show characters looking really old. Um, and I don't mind if they want to go back to that well, because it's just a fun trope. But, yeah, like, uh, Natural Selection's a pretty... It's a carbon copy, and once again, like Naked Now, it's not one that feels like they're raising the bar. It feels like they're lowering it. And that's a weird choice when you are a new Star Trek show starting out like you want to grab people and be like look that was the old we're doing the new well okay isn't that like kind of bizarre instinct in like if you are going to kind of repeat yourself don't you have to be very very confident that you are going to raise the bar as opposed to just be you know rather kind of uh repetitive you know like derivative yeah like all you ever hear with filmmakers when they talk about sequels for example is you want to give the audience you know, a little more of the same, but raise the bar. And that seems to me like that should apply if you're going to remake an episode. Like, no one wants to make remake something, whether it's a TV show or a movie, and have the audience walk out and be like, that was nowhere near as good as the original. Like, what was the point then? Well, uh, have you heard the stories from the James Cameron uh, Avatar writer's room for the sequels? Oh, I don't think I have, actually. He's... So he had like kind of the writer's room assembled and everybody was kept, you know, uh, you know, spitballing like new ideas. How do we kind of expand this universe of Pandora and beyond? And he's like looking at them. I was like, I'm going to fire every one of you. It, this is not what we're trying to do. We are trying to find what it is that brought everyone to this universe in the first place and kind of do that all again, but in an interesting way, you know, and, and like he's very adamant. It's like audiences aren't going to come in for some brand new thing. And you you might want to think that that's kind of a creatively bankrupt sort of way of going about it. Don't people 
like go bankrupt themselves by betting against James Cameron as a storyteller. Like the guy has a knack for storytelling. I think maybe as much as we want to doubt the guy, maybe it's true to a certain degree. Maybe his instincts are right when it comes to that. Well, look at Terminator 2, which is in many ways a remake of the original Terminator, but pushes the mythology forward, introduces some new ideas, but they are pretty comparable, Terminator 1 and 2, in terms of plotting. So I guess we can look forward to um, Dances with Wolves in the future uh, yet again for the four sequels that are coming. Oh boy. Like, I would love to get on board with Avatar, so we'll see if that happens. Because the first one, I rewatched it not so long ago. It's fine. It's fine. It's my. It's one of my least favorite James Cameron movies. I I rewatched the first one um within the last six months. I I, re- I liked it much more than I recalled liking it. Uh, like I'll mm-hmm. say that. Like um, so I am looking forward to the sequels. Like the thing is, it never really like kind of struck a chord with me the way that it did uh for audiences, uh, mass audiences back in the day. Um, it, I enjoyed it well enough that I'm intrigued by whatever the sequels are going to do. I, it, maybe I misspoke. Cam, are there going to be? I, I keep getting few confused. Like how many sequels are there going to be to this? Okay, I think there are three officially, because um, I think they're done um, uh, production. They're working on post-production now. I think they're doing three, and he also has plans for like a couple more, but those other two, I think, aren't guaranteed yet. It'll depend on the success of the next three. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we could have a sixology when it all is said and done? Yeah, yeah. Well, he okay, says okay. he has no interest in any stories outside of the Avatar world now. Yeah, uh, look, uh, the only thing that bugs me is, like, uh, he's such a talented filmmaker that it kind of bugs me, like, this is what the rest of his career is going to be spent on. When he He's probably in his 70s now, right? Close to. Yeah, real yeah. close to, if not. And, I mean, it's been how many years? Uh, what, 12 or 13 years since Avatar, the first one? It's just a real bummer. We didn't get another James Cameron movie, at least somewhere in between. Yeah. Okay. Well, Cam, uh, what is next on your list here, sir? I'll try a clumsy segue and say, while we're talking about movies, let's talk about another Star Trek movie. And this is one I think is actually an interesting debate we can have of, is it a bad remake or did they improve it? I don't know. That is the episode Way to Eden from the original series and Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Which takes many plot elements, you know, kind of these hippie type figures, these people of the earth who take over the Enterprise to go off to a Eden or a Shakare place. Um, it all goes wrong once they get there and they're all like wiped out. Again, like, I think if you ask the average Star Trek fan who obviously was watched the original series, I think they would probably say the way to Eden is better, but... I don't know. Where do you stand on this one? Okay, I, I am kind of an apologist for uh, The Final Frontier. That, that's long been established. Um, I, I don't think Witty Eden is, is that great. Like, there's mm-hmm. the memorable, like, musical sequences, you know, but um, other than that, like, I, I think, like, they're having way more fun in Final Frontier. Um, but the other thing about Witty Eden, though, is this is back when just kind of, like, mainstream society we're afraid of hippies. Like, I, I mean it legitimately. Like, we laugh at hippies now, but people were afraid of them back in the day. Like, they represented the counterculture, people that did not want to abide by society's rules. There's also concerns about, like, Charlie Manson and all that. Um, you go to, I, I guess, the Final Frontier era, and these are kind of representative of what, I, I guess, hippies eventually became, kind of the uh, the aged, new age sort of folks, you know, now into adopting yoga and all that, um, you know, uh, eating uh, their uh, granola, that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, ultimately, I think if you're going to rip yourself off from the original series and go with maybe a uh, less than uh, beloved episode and turn it into a less than beloved movie, I think the movie actually came out on top here. Yeah, like I feel somewhat the same way. As much as I enjoy watching The Waiting, and we did that one on our Best Worst Episodes 2, I think. I think it was the second one. Um, there's things to that are fun in that episode. You know, there's some fun characters that they introduce, but it kind of gets bogged down in a whole lot of waiting, which I guess, to be fair, so does Star Trek V. Maybe that's a problem with these space hippies. Once they take over the ship, we just wait because they don't really pose a real threat. 
but wait, i wait, feel wait, like cam the, <laughs> yeah? the episode uh, it, it was originally titled the weight to eat it <laughs> but it feels like I, I can appreciate that when they wanted to do Final Frontier, that they were looking at an episode that maybe had some ideas that didn't fully feel like, well, we hit a home run, so why bother replicating it? It's something where it's like, hmm, there might be something there. What if we were to uh, flesh this out again and try it, you know, a little bit of a different angle? I think that's interesting. And, it, you know, by um, giving, um, you know, the Lawrence Luckenville character, Cybok, a connection to Spock, it gave it more of an actual character motivation than, you know, the way to Eden where it's like Dr. Severin, who's just like some random dude. You also get to, in theory, pay off more of the what's waiting when we actually get to Eden. Whereas like in the actual episode of to Eden, they basically get there and drop dead. Um, so I can appreciate them trying to flesh it out. I, I will, with you, agree that Star Trek V The Final Frontier is the probably the better version I don't think that's the way the rest of Trectum would acknowledge it, though, which is why I included it with, you know, this episode. Well, I, I'm also curious, just kind of from your perspective, you know, in, in that we are going back into that old Star Trek well of God characters really being revealed to be space aliens. You know, do, do you consider that, uh, you know, Star Trek just being derivative in its movie form? Is it ripping itself off or is it just kind of like... You know what? It's Star Trek. You're gonna have um, people in spaceships. You're gonna have transporters. You're probably gonna have, you know, um, superior life forms passing themselves as gods. Yeah, to me, that's just a Star Trek trope because Roddenberry's doing that all over the place on the original series. He's doing it in the animated series with, uh, you know, the Lucifer character and the Mayan god. So to me, I don't have a problem with that. It's just that when it's actually done in Star Trek V. It's not done with a whole lot of energy or life. And, you know, as I love to uh, constantly mention is the, it's basically just a giant head going, <laughs> like it's, it's pretty bad. All the energy and life in that movie uh, sequestered in the fan dance. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. The fan dance is probably the most iconic thing out of that movie. But here's a question. Way to Eden, as you referenced, it's got some pretty funny songs. Would Star Trek V have been improved? with more songs as long as it was, it was shatner singing with uh <laughs> you know nimoy also wait kim there was row 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 your boat oh my god there was there was yes. yeah we shatner just needed this singing... <laughs> now what kind of music would cybok have sung it's the 1980s is there like a musical artist you can think of that would maybe have like composed the music that fits cybok like, I don't think he's kind of like Duran Duran, you know, esque. It's, um, because Duran Duran, you can go back and they're kind of like critically like hailed, you know, even to this day, mm -hmm. you know, that they've got their cred. I'm thinking it's more of kind of, um, maybe Def Leppard, you know, you know, kind of those rock bands like right at the end of the 80s where it, it's really heavy on synth and like, um, like kind of the, uh, fake drums you know that fake drum sound you know boo, 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 boo. you know like one of those <laughs> kinds of bands you know as much as i would like to say guns and roses because of paradise city um <laughs> they're a little too cool for star trek 5 <laughs> sure yes yes do you have a particular uh band in mind or or kind of uh genre from that era that might uh translate into star trek 5 beyond row 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 your boat I, I was wondering, maybe like with Cybok, a little more new agey music, like going like Yanni or something. Yanni, wow. Okay. <laughs> now you know what the outro music will be this week. <laughs> Can't wait. All right. Uh, Cam, uh, last one on my list, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, though. Um, this one is, is kind of a weird one. I get why they did it. Because if you do something right, why not try it again? Especially if it's your last episode. This is all good things versus Endgame. You know, TNG versus Voyager. Where I think they took all the uh, like great elements, the, the moments that we loved from all good things. You know, in which we're really sitting with these characters in the future for a long time. Seeing how far they've gone. Um, having kind of like these emotional reunions and then they just cut it all out and it, instead it's just Janeway meeting up with some rando Klingon friend played I think by Vaughn Armstrong if I recall correctly um, it's just like it, it's just such a weird one and, and, and like even like the back and forth between timelines I'm just like okay I get what they're trying to do it, it just it emulates 
like all good things too much in a derivative way and not in a way that really pays it like great homage in, in which it's really doing something different like this this one just kind of left a sour taste in my mouth when we did our rewatch recently i i i was much fonder of it than when i watched it you know as it aired it seemed as if it wrapped things up um or at least i knew what to expect and how little they would wrap up but uh, in terms of like conclusion i i it, it's so tough if you're gonna really kind of ape uh one of the all-time uh, series finales you know it, that is all good things yeah this one is really frustrating and one thing about all good things that made it so successful was yeah we got the novelty of seeing the uh characters when they're older which voyager also goes to as well with you know gray-haired harry kim and um you know uh <laughs> deceased chakotay but um the thing with like what made all good things so successful was that we got to know those characters at that age we actually went and spent time with data you know at the university we went and spent time with crusher on the pasteur they actually contributed to the story and you know actually did things even even you know a smaller role like um jordy going to see picard on the um you know at the winery moments like that matter whereas like with the voyager one you don't get that. Like, they go to the reunion, and then Janeway's just off. Like, other than, like, um, than Tuvok's disease, which is getting worse and worse, you don't get the characters actually interacting with the story of how this is all going to get resolved. I don't mind that it's a Janeway-centric story. That makes complete sense, the same way that All Good Things being a Picard story made sense. But, like, utilize your crew. It would make it feel like more of a grand finale. And if you're... Look, the writers made no secret of the fact they wanted to basically, in, in in a lot of ways, rip off all good things. At least rip off the good elements. Well, the other issue, though, is that the argument for them not showing the present-day crew reunite with their friends and family at the very end is they said, well, we showed that at the beginning of the episode. You know, that, hmm. that is kind of the future scene in which they're celebrating Voyager's return. Okay, so we see a, a very short scene of them reliving the day that they reunited, and then that was it. And like, like that that scene. What like I, I think Tom had like what like two lines in there. It's just it didn't feel as if um we got the what what we had all been kind of uh, invested in, you know, which is kind of like that trip back home, you know, and, and it's like we didn't get kind of that sweet relief that we wanted to be there with the crew at, at the time as well. It, it just, it, it, it just ultimately left me deflated when the episode ended. And uh, believe me, when uh, Picard's sitting there playing poker with the uh, crew at the end, that did not leave me deflated at all. No. And I mean, the all good things episode did more for the character of Tasha Yar than Voyager did for like, pretty much its entire supporting cast minus you know like a couple here and there like seven of nine um poor chakotay i I'm actually have a question for you if you remember back in the day people's reactions to chakotay not even being around when it got to that you know future period um it, it was okay because i think a lot of people are just kind of like um miffed by the sudden romance between the two mm. uh between seven and, and chakotay I think what surprised more people at the time was just the way that the Tuvok storyline was treated. And, like, he didn't even seem to be, like, the same Tuvok. And, and like, he's going through, like, mental health issues, of course, you know. Um, I think that irked people more than, you know, looking at Chakotay's epitaph. Mm, yeah, because that is also giving Tuvok that issue is just kind of replicating that aspect of all good things with Picard. They're just taking that aspect and... Yeah. Instead of giving it to Janeway, just moving it over to a supporting character and using that as a ticking clock. And it just feels lazy. Like, I, when I watch Endgame, I don't hate Endgame. And we have friends that actually, that's one of their favorite episodes of Star Trek. And, you know, I, no problem with that. It's not like they're announcing that, like, Unnatural Selection is their greatest episode of all time. Then I might have some questions. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Endgame is just one I find frustrating because it is you know well you uh, mentioned you know star trek so often doing the god figures and it's like you have good examples of that you have bad if you want to do this alternate timeline and future stories you can have good and bad but i feel like going up against all good things was a real tough ask for a finale for voyager and the fact that it kind of lands at that b grade level for me makes it frustrating 
was it frustrating to you that we never got that one final like kind of glimpse of Kess? You know, were we just way too far past that point after the return in Fury, which that was not a good episode. That, that was actually one of Voyager's biggest, you know, stinkers. Um, would it at least have been nice if they tried to bring her back? Well, yeah, again, if you're going to rip off all good things, why not work in a character who's been gone a while? I think if you brought in Kess, that could have worked really well. And, you know, the audience has, at that point, I think more of a relationship with Kess than they probably do with Tasha Yar. Tasha Yar's um, only, you know, done season one and then uh, yesterday's Enterprise. Um, Kess has more episodes under her belt. So that could have been really good and also potentially redeemed Fury, one of the worst episodes of Star Trek Voyager. I think even just like a small moment could have done something, you know, um, or even just Neelix mentioning her when he has, I, th I think Neelix only has one moment in the finale and that's like on the view screen because he's already settled on that Talaxian asteroid colony like light years away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I would have used Neelix more. I would have used like several of the characters. I would have been probably trying to find some other ones earlier in the series that maybe, you know, near the beginning of the journey trying to write those in just for... I think it would have been more fun. Like, I don't find Endgame to be a, that much fun. And All Good Things is a fairly serious episode, but it's fun. Yeah. All right, Cam. Uh, do you have another one that you want to share? Okay, I've got one that also takes a all-time great TNG episode and tries to kind of do the same thing. And it's a recent episode of Star Trek, folks. It is um, Terra Firma, the Discovery two-parter, leaping off of Tapestry, the TNG episode. And Tapestry, you know, obviously it's all about Picard's backstory and how it informed who he is. And we see Terra Firma. It's all about the backstory of um, of um, Emperor Georgiou and how it created, you know, the character we know now and the decision she made. Um, it even involves, you know, instead of Q, we've got the Guardian of Forever. So it's really taking a lot of those elements. I don't think it does it, like, as blatantly as, say, a Naked Time, Naked Now situation. But it's a tough ask, I think, because Tapestry... Tyler, is it your favorite episode of TNG? I know it's up there. Yeah, I, I would put it in my top top five. I, I, I'll just go back to the example. I think uh, last year's birthday, it's in the middle of the pandemic, and I told my girlfriend, let's just watch Tapestry uh, as we go to sleep tonight. You know, and like that, that was kind of my go-to uh, pick for Star Trek. Did you wake up next to Q? <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> I'm so yeah. proud of that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Terra Firma was an episode you and I were, I think, really into in part one where we thought, oh, well, this is interesting in that like Tapestry, it's showing us, you know, or, uh, it, it's giving us a glimpse into the life of Georgia we never would have gotten any other way. And that's what Star Trek does really well. I think it was part two where it kind of lost us, whereas Tapestry holds together as a very expertly written hour of television do you think that terra firma 2 could have benefited from uh giorgio showing up in the mirror universe once again but wearing kind of that blue science uniform the same one from the next gen era you know because of uh, all, all the 31st century time travel would that have been kind of the the clincher for you <laughs> Well, <laughs> you joke, but I actually think that's an element that makes Tapestry so successful is, again, it's a fairly serious Picard story, but it's having fun. We get the loser Picard in the science uniform. We get this alternate glimpse at characters, whereas as soon as you drop us back in the mirror universe of Discovery, the fun kind of goes out the window. There's some. I actually, you know, we both enjoyed the part one where we got to be reintroduced to a lot of the characters and seeing Landry and you know, characters who are no longer on Discovery, you know, pop back in. But at a certain point, the energy of the Mirror Universe of Discovery gets a little suffocating and just ugh, consistently violent. And I just found that got really tiresome. And also there's the Lorca factor. Yeah, well, uh, after watching Nausicaans and Pale Picard through his heart, like you just had no stomach for more violence. <laughs> So much fun. Love it. Love it. Still, my, my, my favorite gag from uh, Terra Firma continues to be the fact that Mirror Universe uh, Nielsen has brown hair, while Prime <laughs> Universe Nielsen has blonde hair. I'm just, like, just the way to represent good versus evil. I'm like, okay. 
I I still laugh. I, I still think that's like hilarious of the Discovery writers. So props to them. That's a real Betty Veronica situation <laughs> going on in the writers' room. <laughs> They're like, well, that, that pretty much sells it all right there. I was always on Team Vet- Betty. Like, were you ever kind of a, a Veronica proponent in some of those comics, or was I? I don't know. Like, I, I know some people kind of leaned more towards Veronica because she knew what she wanted and she was trying to get it. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously I don't read Archie anymore, <laughs> but when I was a kid and read Archie, yeah, I was always Team Betty. Like, you always sympathized with Betty. Yeah. Well, then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, like, where where do you come down on terra firma, ultimately, as a comparison, uh, you know, to the tapestry? It's, because uh, it, uh, inevitably that um, it's a wonderful life sort of format right you know mm-hmm. it's showing what your life could have been had you made different decisions and i think like what it's showing us is that Giorgio kind of regrets her decisions but kind of doesn't you know she fe- she sees room for her own self-improvement but she kind of doesn't want to accept it you know like i, I don't think she quite had the same lessons to come out of this that picard did and maybe like i don't need everything to be like um like uh, crystal clear, like cut and dry. You know, I, I I'm fine with some ambiguity here, but Kim, you know me. You, you've come out of the theater enough times with me, and I often walk out of there, and I'll ask you this. I'm like, what was the message of this movie? Like, what message are they trying to tell us? And, and with Terra Firma, the message was is like, uh, we're trying to wrap up Giorgio's storyline somehow, so that if we decide to green light this Section Thirty One spinoff, she'll be available. Yeah, it's a story that felt very much built by necessity versus tapestry, which, um, who wrote that one, by the way? Do you know? I believe, it, and I could be wrong, but I believe it has like a Ron Moore credit. Okay. Well, it feels like an episode that's actually like a work of inspiration of a, hmm, I would love to know about who Picard was and how he became the character that we all know and love. Like it felt like it was actually driven by a real level of artistic inspiration. Whereas, yeah, like um, everything in Terra Firma felt driven by, you know, a mandate of where the show was going and a spinoffs they had in the works. And we were just lucky, at least in the first part, to get kind of the fun of being reintroduced to the Mirror Universe and those characters there and having some jokes there. Well, yeah, if the same message we're supposed to take from both episodes, you know, Picard realizes like being brash wasn't necessarily like a bad thing in his youth. I, I are, are we supposed to take the same message away for Giorgio? You know, like she should always be brash as like kind of a murderous sociopath. Like I, I don't think that's what the message was. But then, I don't know. It inevitably got her in, in deep doo doo in the mirror universe and would have gotten her killed too. Like it's just kind of like it, it, it's a puzzling two parter. Yeah, because you can't say it's about her taking ownership for the things she's done because she was fine with the things she'd done when we first met that character in season one. Yeah, so I don't know. This one, uh, another example of uh, kind of the ripoff that doesn't quite live off, uh, live up to the original. Yeah, um, I've got a couple. I'll just do rapid fire. Just sure. uh, maybe, you know, give a sentence thought or whatever. Um, I've got um, the Space Nazis um, stuff with Patterns of Force and then Stormfront. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, an iconic image, right? You know, like uh, Space Nazis. Very different stories being told, and I, I, I would say that Patterns of Force isn't necessarily my favorite, but uh, much better than what we got with Stormfront. Yeah, it's sort of like Deadly Years, where I go, Patterns of Force, very iconic. Not one of my favorite episodes from Season 2 TOS, but at least it had a story to tell, and a story that when you watch it now, you're like, did Tarantino watch some of this when he made Inglorious Bastards? Whereas, I don't think Tarantino was watching Stormfront for anything, and ever will be. <laughs> but just just uh, totally... Uh, random but like i was listening to uh, tarantino is totally on like his uh novelization press tour right now and so i was listening to a podcast and he just made like uh just a one-off reference to star trek deep space nine he's just talking about kind of um how that lost art of journeyman directors just needs to come back and um he he i don't know he's just like yeah you used to be guys would do like an episode of uh csi er Deep Space Nine. And I was just like, okay. Like, he, he clearly watched, like, uh, like we knew he was a fan of Next Gen, but I, I think he was into, like, Deep Space Nine, too. Yeah, he's a fan of TOS as well. So, yeah. I mean, Tarantino seems to watch a lot of 
pop culture stuff. So I could totally buy that he would have been the guy who's also watching DS9 and Voyager, but just doesn't really publicly talk about it that much. Is he watching Lower Decks? That's what I want to know. That I doubt. He seems less enthused with modern things versus things from 70s, 80s, 90s. I well, he said that he doesn't even have a subscription to HBO Max. That's why he has not watched the Snyder Cut yet. He says he's intrigued by the Snyder Cut, but um, if he doesn't have an HBO Max subscription, I really doubt he subscribed to Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess he can get the 4K of um, the Snyder Cut fairly soon. That's coming out. Um, no, not, not 4K, badgy. <laughs> <laughs> and i've got one more i'll throw out there and i referenced this one way earlier we can argue whether it's even a remake but when you have the whole little goofy mission in stardust city rag it feels a lot like the um criminal um undercover act in piece of the action where you have characters in kind of goofy gangster outfits oh, and yeah. uh yeah it feels like probably maybe more of an homage but also kind of a ripoff and it kind of goes back to that naked now thing of we don't know these characters well enough to see them in a goofy situation do you know uh, the more i think about that um kind of high sequence that that uh, caper from stardust city rag the more i think it, it's kind of akin to back when there'd be like high school like theater performances you know and not even like kind of the big ones that would go on like uh, extracurricular but like kind of like the drama class sort of stuff and like mm. there's the group of students that just thought they were so hilarious by uh, wearing dopey outfits and, and doing like bad accents and they're just snickering to themselves to like a dead-faced audience like that's what my feeling is like as i think about stardust city rag tell us what you really think <laughs> wow. that's just such a bad episode yeah, and I also think there's an aspect of it where they were like, well, if we put the characters in funny costumes, that's good. Whereas when you watch, like, Piece of the Action or really any of the comedy episodes from TOS, it's the direction, it's the blocking, it's the timing, it's the editing. Like, they know exactly how to frame comedy within Star Trek. Whereas, like, Stardust City Rag is just like, uh, Patrick Stewart, um, you're going to talk in a French accent and go. Well, Kim... Okay, based on the uh, teaser for Star Trek Picard Season 2, in which it seems as if we're dealing with alternate timelines, do you think that this kind of positions itself uh, as an episode or uh, maybe a, a season-long arc in which is it going to be ripping off like previous Star Trek iterations, you know, w with this focus on alt timelines? Or does it just really come down to how it's going to be executed ultimately? I think it's going to come down to how it's executed. I wonder, because when I saw the, the trailer, I thought the same thing. And you wonder if it's going to be trying to rip off that Avengers Endgame thing of going through time and popping into various stories from the past. Because um, it just feels like that's the sort of thing that's going to become very popular right now. Especially with like the um, Spider-Man sequel that's coming up where it seems like they're going to do Spider-Verse stuff. I'm just wondering if every property is going to try to pop into past stories and alternate timelines and that sort of thing. As long as we get to hear Patrick Stewart look at an unconscious body of himself from uh, years gone by and exclaims, yes, that is the Federation's ass, then I am all for it. <laughs> what would be the craziest um you know captain picard's story for them to drop in on because we saw thor the dark world like the worst marvel movie that they actually went back to an endgame what would be the tng episode that the audience would just be like holy crap i never thought we'd revisit that story what if uh, we were revisiting tapestry though and we actually saw like 80 year old patrick stewart watching 58 year old patrick stewart's uh play 22 year old john luke picard in those like uh old uh movie era uniforms <laughs> i'm down for it i would also love if we, when we have picard waking up he sees q next to him and then suddenly older picard is like right behind q like good morning <laughs> <laughs> or or he he comes in to deliver flowers <laughs> he's like gene luck picard <laughs> I'm down for it. Okay. okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? 
Cam, I think we've been kind of sitting on this for a while, but we're going to be tackling alien species that could probably handle their own spinoffs. Cam, could you imagine watching a, a Star Trek colon Klingon, a Star Trek colon Cardassians? I don't know. We'll have to find out next week. Mm, space hippies the series i'm down <laughs> um i think we're gonna have a uh fill-in guest uh next week in, in that case <laughs> okay so you can of course find us on the twitter i'm at cam v is in very old pulaski smith <laughs> you can find me at reporting that's r-e-p-o-r-t-o-n-n as in naked from waist down Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.